Welcome to the Cookery by the Book podcast with Susie Chase. She's just a home cook in New York City, sitting at her dining room table, talking to cookbook authors. I'm Caroline Eden, and my new book is called Black Sea, Dispatches and Recipes Through Darkness and Light. For my 150th podcast episode, I wanted to celebrate this very special, very unique book. You call this a transporting, multi-sensory piece of travel writing, one you can read, see, and eat. Your recipes and stories are drawn not only from those living on its shores today, but the ancient legends, historical events, and literary works which are embedded in its unique existence. Black Sea is a tale of a journey between three great cities tied together by the sea. What are these key cities and why did you choose to write about them? Thank you, Susie. Um, that's a really nice introduction. I think it sum, sums up the book perfectly. Um, so the three cities are Edessa, Istanbul, not on but satisfyingly close to the Black Sea, and Trabzon. And I wanted to, to focus on three cities. I love cities. I think you can tell so many stories through cities. And Odessa is relatively new by European standards, 1794. Trabzon is truly ancient, 7th, 8th century BC. And Istanbul, to me, the world's greatest kitchen, um, satisfyingly in the middle of, of, of those sort of geographically. And my idea was to, to travel to those three and to stop at places in between um, that had particularly interesting food stories um, and sort of different people I could meet and talk to and find out about the trade routes and the history uh, surrounding the Black Sea, which really, when you start to dig into it, is an extremely multi-layered um, sea, very ancient, looks like a lake on a map rather than a sea that we, we think of when we think of the word sea. Um, and yeah, that was the idea behind the book. Talk about the frontier theme that permeates this book. There is a frontier feeling to many of the places that I stop at along the way, a sense that the places obviously belong to the countries that they're within, but they're also set apart and joined to one another through the sea as well. And this sort of group portrait began to form as I started to travel and research. So Odessa is a very good example of this. Um, it's southern Ukraine. It's a port city. It was Catherine the Great's port city. And it's it's sort of it's very Ukrainian, but it's also quite Russian. You hear Russian spoken on the streets, and people there would probably say they were Odessan before they'd say they they were Ukrainian. And I think it's to do with being a city which is right on the sea that looks out to sea that sort of has its back in a way to to what's to, to the land behind it. And a lot of the Turkish cities that I stopped at had a similar feel. Um, very separate, quite nationalistic often, um, a little bit ignored some of these cities. So very, very interesting place and quite off the tourism map as well. So the first city you focus on in the book is Odessa. Isaac Babel, a famous chronicler of Odessa, loves scrambled eggs with tomatoes and aubergine caviar on ice. Tell me about Odessa's literary son. Oh, Isaac Bubble is one of my favorite writers. And it was just by chance that um, a wonderful tr translator that I know, Boris Draliuk, was translating Odessa stories um, just as I was researching the book. And he very kindly donates a great poem um, included in the book about Odessa. But the great son, Bubble, um, just 
he wasn't a food writer, obviously, he was a great literary writer, but he writes amazingly well about food. So, you know, men are thwacked over the head with colanders and, and that sort of thing. And he describes these fantastic feasts in courtyards. Um, and food, it's a very it's a very good tool for talking about many different things. And Bob already uses this in his stories. Also, I mean, Odessa is a great port city. So lots of wheeling and dealing and a city with underground catacombs. So lots of exploration and Bible writes beautifully about these things. And he's remembered there so well today. The, 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 the rumour goes that they raised the money within the city for a statue of, of Bible, I think three, two or three times quicker than they raised one for Pushkin. And I mean, Pushkin is absolutely revered in Odessa. He has his own museum, but people love Bible. Um, I went to a literary flash mob there a few years ago to do a story for the Guardian newspaper. And there were hundreds of people on the streets of Odessa reading Isaac Bubble, which to me was just remarkable. It's it's a very literary city. It's also a city built on grain and trade. Um, and you notice that food was the perfect lens for understanding the city's history. But you also noticed a sort of melancholy and silence that enveloped the city. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, geopolitically, Ukraine is a very interesting, tricky <clears throat> country. But Odessa has a, has a silence where you'd expect for it, to, you know, it's a port city. Um, you'd expect it to sort of be quite clanging and noisy, but, but it isn't. It's got this sort of lovely, briny, quiet, sea-whipped air. And in the morning, it is completely silent. You get the sort of trams trundling around these great old pastel peeling buildings, which look like there's something straight out of a Russian novel. And it can be very romantic to an outsider um, to experience this. It's a very, very unique city, Odessa. And yeah, a kind of melancholy. I, I write in the book about how sometimes you can be sat in a cafe, everyone's having a nice time, and all of a sudden something seems to come in on the breeze, and there's a sort of melancholic atmosphere, and that's the Black Sea. It, it sort of it does do this. It's a strange, strange phenomenon. Why do you think Odessa was a literary haven? Odessa was a literary haven, I think, because it was it was very far south compared to the cities, obviously, of Moscow and St. Petersburg. And a lot of um, writers, Pushkin, um, Gogol, came down, sometimes um, sort of through self-exile or exile, other times to, to take the air and to live in kinder climates. Maybe their health wasn't so good. And like attracts like, it just became a kind of magnet for, for literary groups. But also Mark Twain came in. It wasn't just Russian writers. Um he came in on a steamboat and writes about ice cream and sort of says, you know, when you're in the hot climates of the East, if there's ice cream, you have to eat it because you're not going to find it everywhere. And that was in Odessa, which already had a fantastic cafe culture when he was there. Yeah, it was interesting that Twain thought that it looked like an American city. I can't see that, but I, I haven't traveled extensively in America, Chicago, New York, San Francisco. Um <laughs> Yeah, I'm not quite sure what he means by that, but but he does talk about that. You're right. He, he says that it looks, it's got the, the street layouts are familiar to him. And back then, who knows, that was likely the case. In Isaac Bobble's short story, De Grasso, he wrote, Macaroni boiled in vats of foamy water in front of the shops, sending up steam that melted high in the heavens. What was the Italian connection to Odessa? One of the things I wasn't expecting when I got to Odessa was the Italian connection. Um, and I, I had a guide for the day, and she just started speaking about it, about saying how the early street signs were not only in Russian, but they were in Italian as well. And I thought that was amazing. Um, and the more research I did, I found out there were more Italian connections. So the city's first restaurateurs were Italian. Italian was taught in schools 
and it was the lingua franca of the harbour, as it was in Constantinople across the Black Sea. Um, so to tell that story and to sort of, my, you know, we said earlier about it being a multi-sensory book, I include a recipe for Italian street polpette, um, beef and pork with fennel and the sauce, very simple recipe, but the kind of thing I imagine would have been served. Um, it's said that the first dish that was served in a restaurant Odessa was Italian meatballs. Alexander Pushkin, when he's there in Odessa in the 1820s, he says he heard Italian spoken on the streets. He stayed on Italian streets um, in a hotel when he was there. The other amazing Italian connection uh, was when I was researching the newspapers here in the UK, and I'm sure in the States as well, started to report on these shipwrecks that were being discovered under the Black Sea, 2,000 metres below so they found, I think it's 40 to 60 um, different ships. They started these marine archaeologists uh, revealing 2,500 years of seafaring history. Genoese, Venetian, Cossack assault vessels, a Roman shipwreck. One of them apparently had clay jars with diced up fish steaks inside. And this really shows the history of trade around the Black Sea because all of those, um, the fishing ports were all Italian originally. Uh, the first traders were Italian. And the, the Black Sea uh, is a dead sea. So the top layer has oxygen where the fish are, and about 90% of it doesn't have oxygen. And this is what preserved those shipwrecks so perfectly. So amazing Italian connections and things I never expected to find um, when I first set out on the journey back in uh, 2013, I did my initial Black Sea journey. I was so interested to read about the oxygen-deprived waters of the Black Sea. So it's almost like there are stories on the land, and then there are stories way down in the sea. That was what was so interesting. It's you, the stories were not just, as you say, on on land. They started as I started to research to be under the sea as well, which I found almost more interesting in a way because you know, two thousand five hundred year old ships being discovered is just amazing and just shows how how long trade and migration has been happening around that that part of Europe. In the Romania section, you have Tsar Nicholas II, Imperial Gala Menu at Constanta. This guy squandered the nation's wealth on celebrations, and 55 people manned his kitchen. He had three levels of cuisine, which kind of cracked me up. Simple holiday and parade. Can you talk a little bit about him? Well... You know, royal families were doing their, their trips around, around the Black Sea. And, and when he came into Constanta, um, you know, the Tsar came to Constanta, he came there to feast and to meet and to talk about, you know, business and military campaigns and, and, that, and that sort of thing. But they they went on on shore and I and they had this feast and they toured some cathedrals and it's just an interesting slice of of, of European history and, and shows how people would would sail across the sea um, to meet one another and, and to feast. Um, it's quite it's quite amazing to get to get that menu and archivist in uh, Bucharest found it for me. I just thought it was an, another side because I became quite obsessed with this building called the Casino um, in Constanta which I say is the most amazing dilapidated building in, in, in the world, potentially. Um, and it's sort of left in ruins. And we were very lucky to get permission to go in and take a couple of photos for the book. And it's just amazing. It's, it's right on the Black Sea, kind of on a bluff, the waves slapping it. And if it was anywhere else, it would probably have been turned into a fabulous hotel or restaurant. But unfortunately, the funding has never come to fruition in Constanta to save this great building where the Tsar arrived. 
That's my favorite photo in the book of the casino. It's a great photo. I, I work with a great photographer, uh, Theodore Kay. He's a, a friend of mine and lives in China. And he followed in my footsteps taking taking pictures. And he's just brilliant. He's got this really cool journalistic style, which I really like, which I think fits the book and tells the story. Um, yeah, I love the photography in the book. He's brilliant. Travel writer Sir Sacheverell Sitwell took eight days to get to Romania from London on the train. He published Romanian Journey, which I'm going to read next week when I go to the beach. (laughs) And he wrote in it, English literature is nearly silent where that country's concerned. Do you feel the same way? Certainly on the coast. Sitwell was a real character, and I, I would also like to read read more of his work. He comes from a, a family of true English eccentrics. Yeah, I mean, Transylvania, a lot of Brits go to Transylvania and do the sort of homestay trekking experience, and it's beautiful. I've been to Transylvania. But if you start to sort of dig around the, the Black Sea coast of Romania, I didn't meet another tourist when I was there in Constanta. A lot of Romanians were there on holiday because we were there in the summer. I was there with my husband, but no, no tourists. So that if you if you want an unusual trip, including Constanta would be would be a good place to start. It's a very, very curious place. Yeah, he wrote Romania is still unspoiled. Yeah. And I think it's probably true to say today to a certain extent, I might not be correct on this, but as far as I understand it, the last existing true wildflower meadows are in Romania. Very hard to find it elsewhere. Talk to me about his father, who was apparently more eccentric than he was. I seem to recall that he wrote, he published an entire book on forks. Yes. <laughs> and he, he developed something called the Sitwell Egg, which was some bizarre thing he'd insist on having for dinner. But he, when I say he came, comes from a family of eccentrics, I think the father was even more eccentric. And Sitwell Jr. was a very good writer. I haven't read his father's stuff, so I'm not sure. You write about the cash caval cheese he finds in the round boxes of bark. Can you describe this cheese? I talk about it in the book because he writes about it, but I, it's 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 a smoked cheese in that's sort of smoked within bark. So I imagine it would be delicious and woody and smoky, but I haven't yet tried it. I'm afraid that must be must be my thing to do when I go back to Romania. Yeah, <laughs> that should be first on your list. <laughs> I think it should. It sounds delicious. Now on to Bulgaria. Tell me about Elena in the tiny fishing village. Everyone always asks me about Elena, and I love talking about her. And um, the story that she told was, gosh, well, it was very Black Sea. It, it sort of started off one way and ended in a kind of tragic tale. She was an amazing character. She claims to be the last fisherwoman in Bulgaria. And when I was talking to her, she, she told me a documentary had been made about her um, and her life. So I had no reason to dis- disbelieve that this was the case. She was from a family of fishermen. Um, who all said, you know, you can't go out and fish, you'll never be able to pull out, pull out as much fish as, as the men. But of course, she, she did, and she proved them wrong, and she's very, she's very good. Um, and she's, we're sort of sat at this little briny, um, salty little cafe where she was just serving beer, working there on a spare day or whatever, and um, sat with us and had a beer and said that she has this great connection with the sea. Like lots of fishermen will, will, will talk this way and sort of, you know, get very animated and sort of start pulling imaginary rope through their hands when they're talking to you and, you know, describing the storms. The Black Sea is infamous for being a dangerous sea because it's got very few safe harbours. So we're talking about this. And then I could sort of tell, I talk about this in the book, about the conversation sort of starts to skirt off 
course and I could see she was becoming more and more melancholic and very tragically told me that she'd lost a daughter um, just a few weeks ago and now goes out in the sea with a stove and some bread and stays out there all night by herself, which is incredibly dangerous. Um, but she said that that's her way of trying to compute and deal with the pain and the grieving process in the solitude of the sea. So, I mean, I left feeling completely flattened by the conversation. Um, she gave me a big hug at the end and I, I wasn't prying. She just freely told me this. And um, yeah, it was very moving. But again, just sort of sums up how powerful the sea is to many people that live around it. You know, it's it's work, it's emotion, it's history, it's identity. Migration is a major theme in the book. Um, it has become a modern day migration route as well, but I talk about it more from a historical point of view to make the point that it's not new that people are migrating around Europe's frontier areas. What do the fishermen do in the winter when the Black Sea is frozen over? I'm not sure, to be honest. Um, it's not a question I asked any of the fishermen that I met. I'm not sure if it freezes. Um, I imagine parts of it would certainly up towards Russia on the Turkish coast. I wouldn't have thought so, but I'm not sure. That's a tricky question. <laughs> so what's, what's the connection between salt and Bulgaria? Bulgaria's got a fascinating history with salt. I mean, there are a few things to talk about with salt. Um, they're very, very keen on coloured salts. So when I first got to Bulgaria, to a city called Varna, which is a really interesting uh, small city right on the Black Sea coast, you often find coloured flavoured salts on the restaurant tables, uh, flavoured with paprika and cayenne pepper and fennel and all these sorts of different spices and herbs and things, which I really liked and I hadn't really seen that anywhere else. That was interesting. But what was more interesting is that a village not far away from Varna was once the wealthiest town city in Europe because of salt. So they were mining salt there and because of the salt became very, very rich and started to create um, fantastic jewellery, which they have in the, in the museum in Varna. Uh, very, very, very old worked gold. Some say the oldest worked gold in the world, and that's all due to um, salt. You know, I write in the book, you know, man can certainly live without gold, but he can't live without salt. You know, without salt, our, our muscles seize up and, and we, can't, we can't live. So salt's such a, such a crucial thing to people. And there's a lovely little museum somewhere called Pomery where they talk about the history of salt and people go there and they bathe in the mud flats around this museum. And you can buy packets of Bulgarian salt to, to bathe in in your bath at home. So it's it sort of continues this this history uh, of salt. But I think that the lady I spoke to at the museum said that now countries like Israel have overtaken the, the trade and they don't really produce it very much or not enough for their own country. They import the salt. So down to Istanbul, not on the Black Sea. You've been visiting Istanbul for many years and it's basically the center of this book. How has Istanbul retained its culture after all these years, and how is it tied to the Black Sea? I found Istanbul, uh, a city I absolutely love and visit um, a few times a year, every year, um, was a very Black Sea city. Somebody said this to me one night, um, and of course, it's one of those things that once you start looking for it, you see it everywhere. So I'd get in a taxi, and the taxi driver would be from, say, Rize, where for some reason, a lot of taxi drives in Istanbul happen to be from this Black Sea city. 
um, where they produce the tea up in northeastern Turkey. Um, I met restaurateurs and chefs who were running Black Sea cafes and restaurants. Hammam owners, I met some hammam owners who were from the Black Sea. And I also met um, or went to a restaurant where Russians, white Russians, had traveled across the Black Sea and were now sort of running these descendants of were running these amazing white Russian restaurants. And this is what they came in the 1920s fleeing the, the Bolsheviks. Amazing uh, Black Sea history in Istanbul. There's a market called um, Kastamoni Market where on a Sunday all the Black Sea traders travel all night to bring their Black Sea goods to sell um, at this market. So, yeah, it's, it's one of those things. Once you start looking for it, it's everywhere. What are white Russians? So white Russians fled uh, the Bolshevik powers. They were normally sort of aristocratic or quite well-to-do Russians. And they, if they could leave when the Bolsheviks took power, they did. Um, and a lot of them fled across the, the Black Sea. And they came in. Um, there were already Russian churches in Istanbul. So Russian churches existed, Orthodox churches, mainly for pilgrims who were heading to Jerusalem or Greece. And those churches were probably one of the first things that white Russians who would arrive into the docks of Istanbul would see, which must have been some sort of reassurance. And many of them stayed. So now there are two or three existing white Russian restaurants in Istanbul. One is called Regence, which is a sort of famous one. It's quite a fantastic place. The, the food is good. You eat things like, you know, um, chicken Kiev and pelmeni, little dumplings. They have an amazing vodka trolley full of different flavoured vodkas that trundles around the restaurant across the tiled floors, pushed by a man in a white tuxedo. <laughs> That's funny. There's, it's amazing. There's a permanent table set up for Ataturk. Um, it's one of these sort of incredible historical restaurants. Um, and the air of sort of 1920s Russia is in this restaurant. It's a wonderful place. Um, I really love it. Describe watching the Bosphorus. The Bosphorus is the lifeblood of Istanbul. You can't, for me, I can't, if I think of Istanbul, I think of the Bosphorus. It's this wonderful blue colour and it, it's there and it's sort of reassuring and it's a place to call off in the summer. But, you know, if you get on a ferry, you get these lovely sea breezes when the city is sort of stifling hot. But the Bosphorus, I talk about it in the book, as being like, watching it's like turning a newspaper. You can see geopolitics there on the Bosphorus. So you can sit somewhere with a good vantage point, maybe a pair of binoculars if you're feeling brave or a good zoom lens. And you can pick out sometimes the names of some of the ships that are coming through. Uh, there are people who do this as a profession, these sort of professional ship spotters in Istanbul. This is a major waterway linking Russia and the Mediterranean and therefore onto Syria. So you often get Putin's warships <clears throat> coming through, right through the centre of Istanbul. You often get trading ships. So when, when things go wrong with, say, Russia and Georgia, or Russia, things have gone wrong with Russia and Ukraine, and you get these geopolitical issues, you'll see ships coming in to bring um, fruit, vegetables, produce, if the roads have been closed, for example, and the borders aren't open. There's different ways of trying to move produce uh, that the Black Sea is used for. But really, it's the Russian warships that get people rattled. And that's that's really interesting to see. On the map, it looks so narrow. Can two warships get through or is it just one at a time? I think you could probably get two through. It's actually at some points quite broad. Um, and it's it's an amazing, I mean, you could write a book just of the history of the Bosphorus. It's a, it's a fascinating waterway um, and very much part of Istanbul. I mean, 
the most important part in some ways, I think. Now I'd love to chat about the dishes that I made out of this book. Oh, yes. <laughs> so first was the bulgur grape and walnut salad on page 94. Can you describe this dish? So it's a it's a bulgur wheat salad. Um, and the idea comes from, okay, someone has told me since publishing the book, that's not an authentic Bulgarian salad. I have eaten it in Bulgaria. And the point being that the Turks... Um, <laughs> The Bulgarians were under Ottoman rule for several hundred years. There's huge Turkish influence in Bulgaria. If you go back before that, perhaps there wasn't any bulgur wheat because bulgur wheat is really a sort of Turkish Middle Eastern ingredient. But the idea of this dish was to pair it with grapes because Bulgaria has wonderful grapes and quite good wine culture. And the two go very nicely together. So it's a kind of invented dish, but I really love it. It's very light and it sort of shows. Um, there's a great proverb about Bulgarians being the gardeners of Europe. And that was because um, in the early 90s, Bulgaria exported more fruit and vegetables to this part of Europe, to Western Europe, than anywhere else. They produce fantastic fruit and vegetables. It's a reason to go to Bulgaria. The tomatoes are amazing, as they are in Ukraine, actually, I have to say as well. But really, really fantastic fruit and veg. So this lovely salad, which I like very much, and it's so easy to, to make, um, really tells that story. Then I made the red hot and cool strawberries on page 173. And this is something that you enjoyed in Istanbul, right? Yeah, it was just an amazing pudding I had. I'd never thought of pairing chili with strawberries before, but I had it one night in Istanbul and it was just on a kind of very, this is a lovely summer thing, very, very cold yogurt. And then strawberries, which have been cooked with some quite hot chili and sugar on the top. And I just thought that was, it was like the perfect pudding for me. Lots of people have enjoyed that one. That's, um, it's always very interesting to see which recipes, you know, people really pick up on. And that's been a popular one. And I, uh, I love it. And I think, again, because it's very, very easy to make. So then I made black sea beans on page 130. And this was a relatively easy recipe to prepare. But apparently, there are bean masters that perfect this dish. Talk about the bean masters. Yes, that this is a very, very, very popular dish um, in the Black Sea region and actually in Turkey generally. Um, but it's all to do with the butter. So it's a very, very rich bean dish. It's basically beans in a tomato butter sauce. But it's sometimes cooked in these great sort of clay pots, which helps to give it its flavor. And when it's good, it's absolutely sensational. And it's such a simple thing. Um, but it's to do with the butter because... The Black Sea region, the climate's quite cool compared to the rest of Turkey. So a lot of very good dairy farming happens up there in the Yilas, which are the mountain pastures. And the cows have very good uh, milk and they make fantastic butter. And it's this butter that they tend to use for the Black Sea beans, which makes it really special. So the last thing I made was Trabzon Kaigana with anchovies and herbs. Talk about this salty herbaceous cross between a fritter and an omelette. I, I saw on Instagram that you made this dish and I thought fantastic because it's one of my, my one of my favorite ones in the book. Um, it was a great adventure. I went off um, by myself one morning to see what was happening with the Simela Monastery, which is a cliff face monastery, about a 20 minute drive outside of Trabzon. And it's been closed for a few years for renovation. So I wanted to go and see how, what progress was happening. 
And uh, I had a driver to take me there and back to regular taxi guy. And he said, oh, if you want to stop for lunch, stop at this place. It's on a little river. It's my friend's place. It's a really good spot. So I stopped there and I had lunch. And this is what they served me. And it was great. I got a waiter. I don't speak Turkish. I had a waiter who spoke English. And I said to him, please, can you ask your chef for this recipe? I've never tasted anything quite like it. Because a lot of your listeners, I'm sure, will be familiar with the Turkish breakfast, menemen. It reminded me of that, but it's quite different because it's like a fritter. So it's an egg dish, obviously, um, and it has, when the season's right, which is normally the winter months, uh, slithers of anchovy through it to sort of give it that lovely salt hit. Um, so that that's how it comes. And I, I do it with a little bit of mint as well, which is quite an unusual flavor combination. Obviously, I have very romantic memories of sitting on this little river by the Samela Monastery having this breakfast. But I hope I convey some of that uh, feeling in, in the recipe um, because it really is a lovely egg dish. Very simple. Um, and I, yeah, it's one of my favorites. A great breakfast dish. Now to my segment called My Last Meal. What would you have for your last supper? People always ask me this and I always try not to say the truth because the truth is very embarrassing. Um, so let me. No, let I me... want to hear the truth. Gosh. Okay. Well, I was at a dinner party just last week, and a man asked me this question, and he said, "What would your, you know, death row meal be?" And I said, "Well, ideally, I would tell you that it would be some sort of splendid Uzbek plov, which I love. It's a, a layered rice dish of um, carrots, onions, rice, maybe some quince, some lamb, cooked for hours. Absolutely wonderful dish. The sort of dish of Uzbekistan. My first book, Samarkand, was all about that. But if I'm absolutely honest, um, if I've been away for, for months, and I sometimes am away for that long, and I come back home, the and this is really British, the first thing I always eat um, is baked beans on toast with HP brown sauce. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I love it. it. Costs, yeah, I'm afraid it's it's kind of what I grew up eating. And uh, that is always the first thing I have. And I have a feeling that might be the last thing I would eat as well. Where can we find you on the web and social media? Thank you. Um, I am at Eden Travels on Instagram and Twitter. You traveled 1,400 miles around the Black Sea looking at this region through its food culture. And I cannot thank you enough for coming on Cookery by the Book podcast. Susie, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me on. Follow Susie Chase on Instagram at Cookery by the Book and subscribe at cookerybythebook.com or in Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening to Cookery by the Book podcast, the only podcast devoted to cookbooks since 2015.